welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we come before you as a people that you've summoned to worship. Lord, you are the only one true and living God. You are infinite in your being and perfections. You are our most pure spirit, invisible, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. Lord, we know that you are most wise and most holy and most free and most absolute and that you work all things according to the counsel of your own holy will for your own glory. You are most loving and gracious and merciful and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Lord, you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. You are the rewarder of those who seek you. And we know also, Lord, that you are most just, that you hate all sin, and that your judgments are terrifying. Lord, we are sinners, and we come before you, and we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed, um, in the things that we've done and the things we've left undone. Lord, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourself. We are truly sorry as we come before you here, and we humbly ask for your forgiveness, that for the sake of Jesus Christ, that you would have mercy on us and blot out our sin, forgiving us, so that we can delight in your will and walk in your ways, and and glorify your name. We thank you, Lord, that you love the world so much that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And we thank you, Lord, that you have welcomed us here through the blood and body of your own son to have fellowship with you. We thank you that through faith in Christ, we have been adopted as your daughters and sons. And Lord, we just this morning gladly enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise, giving thanks to you and blessing your holy name. Now we ask, Lord, that you would bless our time in feeding on your holy food, this word, and also at the table. Uh, You alone, Lord, can order our unruly wills and our affections. We are sinful people with all sorts of disordered desires, and we pray, Lord, that you would would tame those, that you would um, frame those, Lord, that you would give grace to those. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us to love the things you command and desire the things you promise. We pray, Lord, in a world that's constantly changing and things are moving around, that you would fix our hearts firmly on you, the one who has all truth, all joy. And we thank you in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. So we're in this series in 1 Peter called Keep Going. And this morning, Peter is going to tell us to keep going as Jesus' end times people. You guys realize that you are Jesus' end times people. Where do I get that from? Look at verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. And then he says, therefore, and he tells us how to live together as God's people. He wants us to see where we are in God's 
um, great drama of redemption. He wants us to see that we are his end times people. We are living in the time when the end of all things is at hand. And there's a group of us that are going through a Bible reading plan this year. And if you want to join us, let me know and I'll, I'll put you in our group to do that. But we're, we're going through this Bible reading plan and we're seeing God's great um, stages of redemption. We've got creation and we've got fall and then the call of Abraham and then the exodus out of Egypt. And then you've got the establishment of the kingdom of Israel and you've got the exile and return. And then you have the great movements of redemption in the life of Christ, right? You have his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reigning, and his you know, Pentecost showering down the Spirit and his gifts on his people. And we know what the next event is, right? The next event is his glorious return. When Jesus will return, he will resurrect us, he will change us, he will judge the living and the dead, as verse 5 says, and then he will restore the world and make the world new. And so we're right in the middle of this whole uh, drama of redemption, and he says the, the end of all things is at hand. He's saying that we're, we're at an end stage here. And it's amazing, guys, that we kind of agree on all those basic elements. I've got the Apostles' Creed that I'm going to put up on here, but um, the Apostles' Creed has these basic elements of, of the things that God is doing, and I'll just read it for you real quick. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic there means universal or worldwide church, not Roman Catholic. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And you see these events, right? You see Jesus' birth, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, his burial. He rises again. He ascends into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That Theologically, that's called his session, that he's seated and he's ruling. He's ruling the world. And, um, and that the next step, and I put your here, right here, uh, the next step is that he comes to judge the living and the dead, that's the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. You are here. You are here in this end times when the end of all things is at hand. And I think we forget that. We think that that's maybe something that is far, far away. But ever since Jesus was ascended into heaven, reigning and sent the Spirit, we've been in a period called the last days, the end times. People say, you know, do you think, you know, think we're in the end times? Yes, we're absolutely theologically in the end times. Um, that is what we, we have been in. And we live in this time between Jesus' great victory on the cross and him reigning in heaven to, uh, but before God removes all evil from the world. We live in a time like the time between D-Day and, and V-Day in World War II. And you guys know the difference between those. D-Day was when the Allies stormed Normandy on June 6, uh, 1944. It was a decisive battle. It was from there the, the war was really won. But it was almost a whole year before the Germans actually surrendered on V-Day. And we live in that time. We live in the time when Jesus has won the decisive victory over Satan, D-Day, and, but we live before the time when he will throw Satan in the lake of fire, V-Day. Victory is inevitable, but the battles are still fierce. It's important for us to know that. We live in this time, these this last days, when there's great spiritual power being given to God's people. And I think this is something we need to remember. Matthew twenty-two eighteen said, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He's saying that I will give you the power through the Spirit to go and make disciples of all nations. That was right before he ascended, and then 10 days later, what happened? 10 days after he ascended? 
was Pentecost, right? And at Pentecost, you remember what happened? The Spirit came kind of as, as a mighty rushing wind, and um, the disciples there, and they were started to preach, and they were actually able supernaturally to preach in a way that people um, that spoke another language heard the preaching in their own language. And the people were amazed by this, and they're like, say, what does this mean? And, and Peter explained it, the same Peter that wrote this book, explained it by saying this, this is what was uttered by Joel in the last days. It shall be. So he's saying, this is a sign that the last days have dawned. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What Peter's saying is he's saying that the the Pentecost was a sign that those last days had started, a time when God is pouring out his power into his people through the Holy Spirit. We live in that same time. We live in a time when God is giving tremendous spiritual power to his people through the Spirit to accomplish his mission. So we live in that time. But this time is also a time of great spiritual opposition. You guys realize that? In Revelation 12, 12, it says that the devil's been thrown down to the earth, and he knows his time is short, so he's come after people with great wrath. It says, he says um, in Revelation, it says, the devil has come down to you in great wrath, for he knows his time is short. And so the devil, like a, like a suicide bomber, right, wants to take as many people with him as possible, knowing that he's losing. And so if we live in that kind of a time, a time of great spiritual power, a time of great spiritual opposition, we need clear instructions on how to live faithfully in this time. And that's why he starts off this way. And, he, and then he explains how we're to live as Jesus' end times people. And I see in verses 7 through 11, four kind of practices we should have, four ways we should live to live faithfully in this time. It starts with therefore. Do you see it? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, first one, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We need to be, if we live in this end times period, we need to be spiritually alert people. This is a time for spiritual alertness, right? And he says that we need to be people that are self-controlled. What does self-controlled mean? Self-controlled doesn't mean that you're kind of controlling yourself in your own power. What it means is that through the Word and the Spirit, your mind, which is being informed by the Word of God, is instructing your desires, your emotions, which instruct your actions and your words. That you're in that kind of an order. That it comes God, Spirit, and the Word to your mind. You're soaking yourself in God's Word. That's informing your emotions. And then you're living out the way God's called you to live. Now, our culture tells you to live just the opposite, right? To let your emotions rule, right? You hear things like, um, you know, follow your heart, um, follow your dreams, follow your passions, like, and you guys are all like, oh, that's great. You, you guys like that because you've been discipled by the culture, right? You're like, oh, that sounds good. That's actually not the way God's told us to, be, to follow. He says for us to be um, soaked in the word, following God's word, have our minds renewed, and then have our emotions and our desires and our passions affected by that and live out in the world. We're not to be just dead intellectuals where we, where we don't um, really have any emotion, but we're also supposed to just be emotional people living straight out of whatever we feel. We're supposed to be mind, emotion, life, right? That's the order. And if we have that in a disorder, then we have, um, you know, really slavery, you know? You end up with, instead of your mind in, for, uh, in the word informing your emotions, informing your life, you have your emotions running things, uh, running your life, and then you have your mind just around trying to clean up the mess, right? That's the story of most people's lives, right? Um, and so he says we need to be self-controlled. We need to be sober-minded, 
What does it mean to be sober-minded? It means to clearly perceive reality, what's most important, most valuable, and most wise, and most desirable. And we know that by dwelling in this book, right? This is what makes our minds sober, and this is what gives us a mind that inflames our hearts that we want to live for Him. And why should we stay spiritually alert? Do you see why? Verse 7, he says, for the sake of your prayers. Guys, prayer is the only way to live with power in these end times. We live in a time when God's pouring out his spirit in people in great power, but you're never going to have that unless you're a person that's fervently in prayer. You have to be in constant prayer, right? We've seen so many answers to prayer in our church in the last couple years as we've prayed together. If you have something you need prayer for, ask us. We'll pray for you afterwards. We'll get a group of people. Um, if it's something health-related or something, we'll anoint you with oil and pray for you. Um, there's a, a prayer and worship night that's happening this Friday at Tim and Vanessa's house. Tim? I know you're in here. There he is. Tim's right there. You can, uh, like an extroverted hand up. There he is. Okay, so Tim right over there. Uh, you can talk to him, but go to his house at a time of prayer. Um, if you have prayer requests, we have like through the website, or you can give them to me or whatever. We want to pray for you. Prayer is also, guys, a great measure of our spiritual alertness, isn't it? You know how spiritually alert you are by how well you pray, right? Sleepy people don't pray well, but when we get shaken up, something happens in our life, suddenly we pray, right? Because we're alert. He's saying we should have that kind of alertness. And guys, Peter knows what it's like to be spiritually sleepy, doesn't he? You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember Jesus saying to him, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He would have had a vivid memory of that. And he's saying, don't be like me where I was sleepy. Be alert for prayer. Guys, we live in a time when we can't afford to be asleep in prayer. He says the end of all things is at hand. There's way too much at stake for your family. There's way too much at stake for this church. There's way too much at stake for our mission abroad and churches abroad for us to be asleep in prayer. The end of all things is at hand. So to be Jesus' end times people, we need to be spiritually alert, praying people. Secondly, we need to be relentlessly loving. Look at verse 8. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I love this, because this, this love here is specifically for believers. You see that? One another, right? Specifically for believers. And then it says um, that it's a love that will overcome resentments. It says it covers a multitude of sins. So this is a love that covers sin. It's a relentlessly forgiving love, because the term here, keep loving, it's keep on loving. Keep on one, loving one another, because it covers a multitude of sins. And he, he says this is the most important thing we can do as a people, right? He says, above all else, do this. Guys, we live in a culture where it's very easy. Somebody sins against you, it's very easy to just distance yourself from them, let that relationship die, just kind of let it fade away. And he's saying, he's saying that's the one thing we can't do with each other here. We can't just let those things stand between us. Um, and it's probably the reason why there's so much kind of um, division and turnover in churches. I've mentioned this before, but like it, it, there's a lot of turnover in our valley where people go from church to church and stuff. And a lot of that is unresolved conflict. Somebody offended you and you decided to just leave. That's the worldly way of dealing with it, right? This passage says we're to love one another and cover their sin. Wayne Grudem says about this passage, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action liable to misunderstanding, and conflict abounds to Satan's perverse delight. Isn't that true? You think about like people that you have not really forgiven, and you think about, are you that way, or do you view them with suspicion? You know, whatever they say, you take the worst possible take on it. It's because you haven't forgiven them, right? 
Unresolved conflict is one of Satan's favorite techniques for dividing people. And he wants to do that. He wants to divide you up as a family. He wants to divide up, us up as a church because he wants to hunt us individually. That's the way he works. He wants to hunt individually. Like any predator, he wants to get the, the, the flock scattered. And so that's what he does. And Paul said in Corinthians, you remember there was that guy, I think it's the same guy in 1 Corinthians where you know, they hadn't disciplined him and then they did discipline him. And then in 2 Corinthians, they wouldn't let up. The guy had repented, and they're still like kind of grinding him about his sin. And he's like, he's like, forgive the guy. He said, we do not want to be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his devices, right? Think about that with that unresolved conflict you have, that thing you won't forgive. He says, let's not be outwitted by Satan. I think so often we are outwitted by Satan, right? That he plays us against each other, and we're so ignorant of what he's doing. Um, this verse where he says that it covers a multitude of sins. He's probably thinking of Proverbs 10.12. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You hear the echo there? And, and you hear the opposites there? So when, when I'm sinned against, I have two options. I can, I can stir it up or I can cover it. Those are the two options. Stir it up or cover it. And, and of course, he's not, when he talks about covering it, I want to make it clear. He's not talking about covering up criminal offenses. Okay, That kind of thing happens in the church and that's total sin. He's talking about covering up just sins against you, personal sins against you. Um, when we moved into our house in Canyon Hills, um, it didn't come with any sidewalks. So it was like you walk out of the trash, you walk in the dirt. When it rains, you walk in the mud. It's very inconvenient, right? And our area is super windy, and so there's dust everywhere. But then we got concrete, and concrete is a beautiful thing. I mean, I don't, you guys don't know if you've ever been without concrete how beautiful concrete is. It's such a glorious thing. And so we got the concrete, and now the dirt, right? It's, it's underneath. It's covered permanently. We don't have to deal with it anymore. That's what verse 8 is saying you need to do with the sins of other people in this room. You need to cover it with concrete. You know, you cover it with love. You cover it with concrete so that it can't be stirred up again. It can't because it got covered. A couple uh, weeks ago, we talked about the four promises of forgiveness. And the four promises of forgiveness, if you're really forgiving somebody biblically, the promises you're making is that I will not dwell on the incident. I will not bring up this incident and use it against you. I will not talk to others about the incident. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. That's what it looks like to pour love, to pour concrete over somebody's sin. You see, there's no way to stir that up. You know, we stir things up when we dwell on it in our minds. That's stirring it up, right? That's stirring it up. That's not covering it. We, we stir it up when we bring it up in a conversation later. It's like, you know, spouses are, you know, famous. This is a thing we do, right? We hold these things in. Next time we fight, we bring out 10 years worth of ammo, right? That's stirring it up. We won't talk to others about it. That's a way we commonly will stir it up. Um, we won't let it stand in the way of our relationship. We, this verse calls us to pour love like concrete over it. And, and, and just cover it, seal it, and then it's permanent. And guys, that's what you've received from Jesus if you're trusting in him. You've received his love like concrete poured over your sin to never be stirred up again. Isn't that awesome? Have you guys felt like the amazing feeling of just having your sin completely covered? So that you bring it up and God's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I covered that. Uh, you know, that, it's something I don't even look at. David sang about it in Psalm 32. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Do you have that in Christ? Have you felt that in Christ? It's as if when you pray and you, you know, you're stirred up in guilt about something that happened a long time ago that you've repented of and you've confessed and he's covered and, and, and you come before him and you're like, Lord, you know, I just still feel bad about this. And he's like, we have no record of that. You know, he's 
computer, tap, 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 tap. Nope, there's nothing under your file. There's no sin there. All there is is Jesus' perfect, righteous life. Have you felt the joy of that? Have you felt that? Give that to everyone around you. That's what the call is, to give that to everyone around you. And make sure they know. I think this is so important, especially with your kids. Make sure they know they're forgiven. Because sometimes we'll say we forgive them and stuff like that, but we don't make it really clear, like, we are not bringing this up again. This is as if it never happened. Make those promises of forgiveness that you will keep loving them earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. And I just ask you, have you covered every sin of every person in this room? That's what we're called to do, just real practically. Parents, have you forgiven your kids? Even your little kids. You can be in a place where you're not forgiving them. You know, I know, I've experienced that. You know, where you had a kid that maybe was difficult when they were younger, and years later you still kind of feel a little resentful to them. You haven't forgiven them. You need to forgive them. You need to forgive your kids. Kids, even big ones, have you forgiven your parents? And I think that's included in the commandment, you know, to honor your father and mother, is that we forgive them for the ways that they've failed. A lot of you guys are parents now, so you know that you don't do it perfectly, and they certainly didn't. We need to forgive our parents. Uh, married people, have you forgiven your spouse? Have you really have you covered it? Is it covered? Um, and then with us here, is everything covered? Or is there something that could still be kind of stirred up. Guys, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. This is an excellent time for us to relentlessly love and forgive each other. We don't want to be, the, the day before he returns, churning over some bitterness against some person. The time is short. The time is now, right? The end of all things is at hand. Let's forgive. Third, we need to be a people of radical presence. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, Showing hospitality means opening up your lives, opening up your homes to each other, to be physically present with each other. Physically present with each other. Um, Many of the New Testament texts about hospitality are really hospitality towards outsiders, strangers. This one's specifically to believers, though. We can see that because he says one another. And hospitality, guys, was a super important practice in the first century church, wasn't it? Why? Because they often met for worship in homes, right? They actually met, they didn't have buildings, they didn't have schools to rent. They met in homes. And not only was it super important to the church in the first century, it was super dangerous. Because guess what? When you have all the people from the church over for worship, that marks you. That marks you as a Christian home. That marks you for persecution. And so there was a danger to this as well. Um, Satan, like I said, has always wanted to get us alone. He used to use intimidation Hey, if you have everybody over to your house, I'm going to have your neighbors burn it down, right? That was intimidation. Now, you know how he does it? He does it through individualism. He has actually trained us. Through our culture, we've been trained to actually prefer to isolate ourselves. And this has happened in a very short period of time. We're talking 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, just in the last several years, we have all been trained to isolate ourselves. We've been discipled to no longer value physical presence. You guys realize that? And some of you are like, no, I'm an introvert. It's like, well, you might be, but you're also discipled. You've also been discipled by the culture. We've been discipled by, you know, mobile phones, mobile technology, and stuff like that to isolate ourselves. We no longer value physical presence. We prefer to engage with each other in a way that's distant and disembodied and digital. There was an article this week, and it was a major news. I think it was Fox, one of those news websites. And um, the article was, Church as we know it is over here's what's next. And I'm like, oh, please tell me, you know, and church as we know it, it's over. It was, he said, church as in believers gathering in one place, at least weekly together is over. So what we're doing right here, it's over guys. This is over. We're not doing this anymore, right? So gathering in one place 
as a people at least once a week. He said, that's over, really. You know, with digital technology and all that stuff, that's over. What's, what's next is gathering more online, you know, live stream, stuff like that, and churches need to get with it, right? Um, and then he says in the article, I love this, he says, church attendance isn't decreasing, it's decentralizing. And what he means is, you, you know, you meet here this week, next week you stream it, all this different stuff. But you see what he did? He actually redefined attendance to be distant, disembodied, and digital. That's not what the word attendance means. I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? We were watching that this week. It, it's crazy, right? Like, if the church is a business, then, of course, you can buy its services online. And that's what he talked about a lot. You know, Walmart does online. And I'm like, who are you? Like, this isn't, you're talking about a different category. If the church is a business, then, of course, you can buy its services online. If the church is a theater, then feel free to stream it at home. If the church is a family, though, guys, then digital won't do. It's like you text one of your family members and say, hey, you can be home for dinner. And they're like, yep, I'm going to watch the video online. You're like, no, you didn't answer my question. You know, will you be here? Will you be a part of this? Will you? And God has designed, guys, the weekly gathering of the church with, with the Lord's Supper to remind us that physical presence is required. Isn't that interesting? He actually made it a very physical thing. And, and, and you guys realize that the word church means what in Greek? Ecclesia? Yeah, it means called out. It means a gathering, called out gathering of people. It'd be like the town crier would go out and call people out, and they'd all come in the town square and gather. It actually means a called out gathering. So you can't just change it around. Um, the guy who wrote the article is funny at the bottom. It says his name, and he says he's a social media pastor, which a social media pastor makes as much sense as digital attendance, right? Guys, we aren't free to really change what God's designed the church to be. He's designed it to be an embodied people. And what's really neat about this is we have a chance, guys, if we live, verse 9, to be a real light to our culture. In a culture where everybody's alone at home on screens, we're a people that are called to be radically together, radically present, to be a people that actually see each other, eat together, meet together, and stuff like that. So let's not just follow the culture in this. This is our one clear place where we can be a light. And it's amazing how powerful it is. I mean, you think about the first century, a lot of their hospitality were travelers, right? It wasn't really, you know, safe or desirable for, for Christians usually to stay at, like, inns and stuff like that. And so they would stay with other Christians, and they would get lodging and hospitality, and those believers would be rested and strengthened for their journey. And guys, that's exactly what you do when you invite another Christian into your home. You're inviting a weary traveler into your home to be strengthened and encouraged for the journey. And it's amazing to just see how God works through this ordinary practice of hospitality. He strengthens his people in these end times for their journey. In your ordinary homes, and I think of like, I think of like at the Cummings, you know, at the Cummings, a ladies' study is there, and that's been going on for a long time. Sometimes it's over at the hop sitters, and um, just using your home in that very strategic way. People come in, they're burdened with all the pressures of life, and they hear God's word, and they're strengthened, and they're encouraged, and they pray together. I think about like um, Josh and Renee's house. We have baptisms there. The church was actually like birthed there, um, and uh, David and Don's house, you know, got the marriage study that's going on on uh, Friday nights right now. Talk to David if you're interested in going to that. But, and it's cool. And David and Josh are really good examples. Uh, Pastor David and Pastor Josh are very good examples to me and kind of convicting to me. They've both had in their homes people live with them for long periods of time. In fact, I don't think David's ever not had other people living in his home. Um, and He's just a great example of that hospitality. I think of Tim and Vanessa's and the prayer study going on there. That's this Friday. Or Mike and Jen's. And they've done stuff in their home. And all the homes that are used, like the Sissons and the other homes are used for youth. 
It's just really cool to see God using homes like that. And I think it's, it's actually a benefit that we don't have some sort of central meeting place that we use where we are forced to use homes. And it's a very biblical pattern to use homes. And then we invite non-Christians in, right? We invite non-Christians into those gatherings and they're able to hear the gospel message and enjoy gospel community. And a ton of people have come to Christ through our homes. And I can think of a whole bunch of people that came to Christ through ordinary hospitality. What about your home? You know, let me ask you this. Think about this. Who in this room could you welcome into your home to strengthen and encourage them? Hint, not me. Okay? Because you guys are all looking forward. Like, think harder. Look side to side. Who? (laughs) If I get, like, six invitations to dinner after this, that's not what I'm trying to accomplish here. Um, Who in this room could you welcome into your home to strengthen and encourage them? You know, who could you um, have over? And, And just think about this. Why don't you have, like, maybe one night a week this would be a good place to start. Have one night a week that you just like, this is our hospitality night. This is a night we're going to have somebody over from church. And then, you know, Sunday plan who that is. And have it be real simple. If you can't handle doing dinner and stuff, do dessert, whatever. But just have them over, play a game, hang out. Um, it's, it's not difficult, but it is powerful, guys. It's super powerful. Now, some of you guys um, might say, well, I don't really have a place I can invite people. You can offer your presence still, right? You can offer your presence by um, getting together with somebody for coffee to encourage them, or lunch, or maybe you go over to someone else's house and help a mom out during the day. I know a lot of that happens here. Um, or a dad out in the yard or something like that. Um, we have an, an awesome opportunity to use a very simple practice to do kingdom things. And it's been awesome. You guys do it. Um, and I would just say, just do it more and more. I think we all need the encouragement. I look at David and Josh, and I'm like, oh, man, I could totally do more than I am in this area. And it would be a huge blessing to me. It's not like it's a huge burden. Every time you do this, you, at the end of the night, you're like, oh, that was good. Why don't we do that normally? You know, you have that feeling of like, I, something spiritually good just happened in this house. And what's cool, guys, is we do, it, like it says, without grumbling, when we realize that, you guys realize that practicing hospitality is really a form of spiritual warfare. You guys realize that? Hospitality is a form of spiritual warfare. That's why it was attacked in the first century. That's why it's attacked now. When you practice hospitality in your home, you're using your home as a kingdom safe house or as a kingdom refueling station or as a mass unit or as a training camp for the kingdom. I mean, you're using your home for kingdom purposes to strengthen people to finish the mission well. And, um, and so this is a super important practice. Guys, we cannot be involved in God's mission at home alone on the screens. I know you think you can. Like, I just said a guy straight on Facebook, you know, like kingdom win, you know, no, no. You'd be way better off having that guy over for dinner than, than, than scoring a win on, uh, on a Facebook comment. The kingdom, guys, is, is, is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. We need to be radically present people. And then fourthly, freely serving people. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God's stu- uh, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Um, This is a very radical call as well, and it's a call to give free service, okay? Like legitimate free service. We live in a culture where there's a lot of free services, right? You think of social media. That's free service, right? Facebook is free and something. It's not free, actually. You know what they do? They sell your time. They're selling your life to people. Your attention, your time, they take that and then they sell it to advertisers. That's what they do. It's really funny watching the congressional thing with Mark Zuckerberg and one of the senators like, so if it's free, how are you making your money? And Mark was like, "Um, we sell ads, sir. 
Like, that's what they do, right? They're selling our attention. That's what they do. Um, or, you know, some of you guys have this experience where you have an old friend that connects with you and says, like, hey, let's get coffee. I want to catch up. And then you find out she wants you in her multi-level marketing scheme, right? That's a really common one. I'll be at Starbucks just chilling, working on a sermon, and be like, oh, no, you know, like I see a friendship being destroyed over here. It's really, really disturbing. Guys, we live in a culture where there's always an angle and no services are free, but he's calling us here to give free service to each other. Take a look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. What's the way we received it? For free, right? We give service to one another for free. He says in verse 10, as God's good stewards. A steward was somebody put in charge of a house, like a house sitter, maybe, for a long period of time, and would take care of the master's things. And we're called to actually dispense his grace for free. We're called to be good stewards of his varied grace. You see that? There's all kinds of different creative ways we can do this. We've been in charge of a supply of God's grace, and we're to dispense it as good stewards. And, and the Bible calls these abilities to meet needs spiritual gifts. And I want to just mention spiritual gifts in a way that maybe you haven't heard before. Our ability to meet others' needs is called spiritual gifts. And every one of you who's a Christian has multiple spiritual gifts. You have multiple abilities to meet needs of people in this room. And those gifts, I think we've gotten this wrong sometimes, those gifts are not about self-discovery. I think a lot of times we've talked about spiritual gifts this way. You need to discover your, your gifts and realize your potential. And that that's one of the things the church does, is helps you discover your gifts and realize your potential. That's actually not what gifts are about. Um, we hear it that way because we've been discipled to be Gnostics. Gnosticism is the religion of America, and it's this, that you need to discover who you really are and realize your potential. Does that sound familiar? You're like, that's wrong? Yes. Yes, discipleship worked. <laughs> You're like, that's wrong? Yes, the teaching is that you need to discover who you really are and realize your potential. That's the American religion, Gnosticism. The gospel is contrary. It says you need rescue and your identity is in Christ. See how that's different? You're not a person on your own pursuing your, your uh, meaning and you're discovering who you really are. You're a person rescued by God and given an identity in Christ. So these gifts, they're not a call to self-discovery. They're a call to sacrifice. And, and what we're called to do is look for needs in the church body. Amongst these people, look for needs and then meet them. That's what spiritual gifts are about, looking for needs and meeting them. And you guys are great at this. I mean, we think about like volunteers on Sunday morning. It's crazy. We always need more volunteers. But it's, when we go through the list, it's like, nope, we got that person three things. <laughs> this one does four things. You know, I mean, it's crazy the amount of volunteerism that happens. It's awesome. Um, and you guys are also meeting each other's needs throughout the week. And that's what gifts are about. And you guys get it. You guys get that spiritual gifts are about meeting needs, not getting noticed, right? Spiritual gifts are about service, not self-discovery. Because, guys, if the church is a marketplace, then gifts are about you finding a promotion, right? If the church is a theater, then gifts are about you getting a starring role. But if the church is a family, which it really is, then gifts are about meeting needs. You sometimes hear people say things like, oh, there was no work for me to use my gifts at that church. What they're really saying is, I saw no one there who had needs I could meet. It's kind of weird, isn't it? You know, when you look at it that way. This text really puts gifts in the sense of needs, meeting needs, serving one another. And he gives two broad categories of, of needs. There's speaking needs and serving needs. Take a look at verse 10. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks the very oracles of God. Turns out that us in this room, your brothers and sisters, all have needs to hear truth. They have speaking needs. You would speak to them, and that might be in the form of teaching and preaching. It might be in the form of encouragement, 
might be in the form of worship. You know, this is a speaking type, meeting a speaking need as, as they lead us in worship. It might be a need for encouragement or prophecy or prayer or rebuke. Those are all speaking ways to serve or leadership or word of wisdom, word of knowledge, counsel. You know, he says here that we're to be uh, stewards of his varied grace. So this list probably goes on forever, right? Because there's all types of different graces that God will minister through us. But speaking is a hugely important thing to Christians, to receive speaking gifts to them. Um, a lot of times we have, you know, there's a real, you know, kind of uh, speaking against the idea of thoughts and prayers, right? That doesn't do anything, thoughts and prayers. You hear that these days when there's tragedies. You know, don't give me your thoughts and prayers. But in a Christian mindset, thoughts and prayers are huge. Like speaking God's word to somebody is huge. Praying for them is huge. These are the power of God in people's lives. In Proverbs 18.21, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You guys realize your speech can have that kind of power? Isaiah 50, I love this. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of one who is taught. Listen to this. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Don't you love that? Wouldn't you love to sustain with a word a person that is weary? That's what you do when you, when you use speaking gifts to people in this room. And they need it. They need it like crazy. People need encouragement. Life is hard. You know, if you could know, you know, if there was a little sign above everybody of everything they dealt with this week and how hard it was to even come here, you'd just be astonished. You just, you know, you wouldn't even be able to handle seeing all of it. Only the Lord can handle seeing all that. But guys, you could sustain with a word him who is weary. And then there's serving needs. Serving needs. Look at verse 10. He says, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength God supplies. There's all kinds of serving needs in this body. Things like just companionship, just being present with somebody. Um, there's things, people need things lifted and moved. People need rides. People need childcare. People need financial help. People need to be given, you know, a book. People sometimes need to be sent music. Um, they need laundry done. You know, maybe you come and you help somebody with laundry. You help them with shopping. You do a home repair. You give a meal. You sit with them. Those are all serving things. And, and once again, it's varied grace. This list could go on and on. It's about looking for needs and meeting them. That's what spiritual gifts are about. And every one of you has one. Paul called uh, spiritual gifts a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That when you're meeting needs through God's power, it's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. And that's why Peter says in verse 10, take a look at it, he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. You actually, when you encourage people in a biblical way, you're actually, God is actually speaking through your mouth. That's why it sustains people. You're actually speaking God's words through your mouth. Or um, in verse 11, when it says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, God's actually serving, like you came and you moved somebody, or you drove them somewhere, or you bought them some groceries or whatever. You actually serve. God served through you, through your joints and muscles and fingers and feet. Isn't that amazing? That's super amazing. And that's why um, he says in verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified, it's actually God living through us, guys. It's actually God living through us when we use our gifts for one another. And so don't think about platform don't think about self-discovery. Don't think about getting noticed. Think about where are the needs and what can I meet. That's what he's calling us to do. And when we do that, guys, Jesus gets the glory. Jesus gets the glory when we serve for free in a culture that where nothing's free. You know, and there's always an angle. God's church actually really serves people free. And it freaks people out. 
It really freaks people out. When we serve one another for free, they aren't used to it. Like, if you've been in church a while, you're like, oh, yeah, that's just what we do. We're family, right? But to people that are new, they're like, wait, so let me pay you for that. And it's like, well, no, I, we don't do that here. Like, it's not like I got a, you know, square reader, and I'm like, well, let me take your credit card. We'll just, you can sign on my phone. No, no it's not that kind of thing, right? It's a free service to each other. And Jesus gets the glory because it's Jesus living through us, serving and speaking in his words. And when you look at this list, it really does sound like Jesus' life, right? Think about being spiritually aware. Think about Jesus as an incredibly spiritually aware man, right? With his mind filled with the Word of God, with his words and actions and desires perfectly aligned with God and his purposes. You think about Jesus' life, always alert in prayer, always discerning the spiritual reality before him when no one else could see it, right? Or you think about Jesus as the ultimate man of relentless love, Think about him with his disciples, constantly failing him, right? His disciples are constantly failing him. There was that one time they had the big mountaintop experience, you know, transfiguration and everything. And then they come down the hill, and, you know, one of them goes like, hey, that city, they didn't receive us. Do you want me to call down fire to destroy them? And Jesus is like, no. <laughs> like, we don't do that. And this is at the end of his ministry, you know? And then it's like, hey, you know, can we be at your right hand? You know? It's like, you guys, what's going on here? Constantly failing. He constantly loving and covering over their sin. And he does that with failing us, right? He's relentlessly loving to us. Even offering his own blood on the cross as that concrete that would cover the multitude of our sins. They're covered, guys. If you're in Christ, your sins are covered by this relentless man of love. He was a man of relentless presence. God is a very hospitable being. Do you guys realize that? We see that even in Genesis 2. So God creates man, creates his first human being, Adam, puts him in the garden, but then he keeps coming back, right? Checking him out, playing with him, right? He's like, kind of like a kid that, you know, just got a new, you know, bunny or something or guinea pig or something, always wants to take it out. God makes him, he comes back, keeps looking at him, keeps messing with him, walks him in the cool of the day, makes him a wife, keeps popping in over and over again. He wants to be with his people. And then there's the fall and they get uh, driven out of the garden. And, but God still, he wants to be present with his people, right? He's appearing to them um, over and over again, making these different appearances. And then there's the exodus and the tabernacle because God wants to be with his people. And he comes in a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke. He's in the tabernacle and then later they build the temple because God wants to be with his people. He's super hospitable. He wants to be radically present with them. And then, but that's not good enough, right? Because in John 1, it says that Jesus, God, comes in the flesh to tabernacle among us. God wanted to be with his people so much that he came in the flesh to be with them. And he wants us to be with him so much that Jesus actually allowed his body to be torn on the cross to tear the veil of separation between us and him. Guys, that's hospitality. Next time you think of the cross and think of his arms outstretched, nailed to a cross, think of that as hospitality. He's saying, come in. I want you so much in my presence that I'm willing to die for you. It's radical presence. And then now he even dwells within us. He's, not, he's reigning in heaven, but he dwells with, within us through the Spirit, right? He, he wants to be with us, constantly desires to be with his people, to dwell with his people. And then in Revelation 22, we see that we're going to be welcomed home to this temple city right? And there's no temple in the city. The whole city is the dwelling place of God, and we get to live there with him, welcomed in through the cross. And we think of Jesus as a great man of free service, right? Acts 17, it says about God that he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind all life and breath and everything. Guys, we serve a God that's not needy, okay? A lot of religion serves a God that's needy, 
He needs, he needs your money. He needs your service. He needs all kinds of things from you. He needs a place to live. Our God is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. He gives us everything. And God has come in as a man to freely give himself. Mark 10, 45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Isn't that awesome? That's the life living through you. You know, when, when you're called to do all these things, that's Jesus living through you. Jesus, who ultimately exemplifies all those things, will live through you. And um, as I close, I just want to give you one historical note of a band of people that lived this out and there was uh, and had great fruit from it. And it's, um, it's St. Patrick, okay? St. Patrick's Day. I want to tell you the story of St. Patrick's Day, but there's no leprechauns, there's no gold. There's, I just love his hand in this thing. You know, things. That's what I'm going for, you know, eventually, eventually. Um, St. Patrick's Day. So uh, around 400 AD, so this is about the time of uh, when St. Augustine lived. So he's an African bishop. Um, he lived around that time. And um, in St. Patrick, he was raised and catechized in a Christian home in England, and, uh, but he wasn't a believer. And um, when he was about 16, some Irish marauders came, and they kidnapped him and a bunch of other people. And they took him back to Ireland, and they kept him as slaves. And so he was a slave, 16 years old. He's taken away from his family. He's a slave. He's herding animals and things like that. Um, he actually came to Christ in captivity because his parents had taught him the gospel so thoroughly that when the time came, God used that gospel seed that was planted in his heart. He came to Christ. He's radically transformed. His captors realized that there was a, a love in him, for even for them, that was new. He started to develop a love for, for those enslavers of his and a desire for them to be saved. And then one night, about six years into his captivity, he has a dream, and he hears a voice, and the voice tells him that he's going to be freed. He's, the voice tells him that there's a ship waiting for you at the seacoast. Wake up early and go there. So he does. He wakes up early, and he runs away. He runs down to the coast, takes a couple days to get there, and sure enough, there's a ship waiting for him that's going right back to England. He's, he's rescued. He goes home. He, he becomes a pastor. He gets uh, trained in the, in the scriptures. Um, the church at that time uh, was in a pretty healthy place with the teachings of Augustine and stuff like that. And so he's, he's learning God's word. He, he becomes a faithful uh, parish priest. And then um, a, a couple years later, uh, one night, he has another dream. And in the dream, he hears his captors in Ireland saying to him, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, come walk among us. And he takes that as kind of his like Macedonian call, right? That he needs to go back. He needs to share the gospel with the people that enslaved him for six years. Isn't that amazing? And so he gets permission from the church to do it. And what's really cool is he isn't sent by himself. He's actually sent with about a dozen people. And so there's some other priests and there's some students and, and lay people. There's men and women that go on this team. There's a dozen of them. And they go to Ireland and they live in, in community on mission. And so they would arrive at a settlement, a tribal settlement. They meet up with the, the leader of that tribe. Um, Patrick would try to see if the guy would come to Christ. If he didn't come to Christ, he just asked, hey, could we just live next to you guys? We just want to form a little encampment near you and kind of live among you. And if you got permission to do that, they would they'd form a little missionary community there. And they'd live alongside them, and they would show them an alternative gospel community, right? And so they would live, like this passage says, spiritually alert, relentlessly loving and forgiving, practicing hospitality, freely serving each other and the people around. And a ton of the Irish came to Christ this way. All kinds of new communities sprang up. So at, over the 28 years, they baptized tens of thousands of people 
Uh, Forty of the tribes in Ireland became predominantly Christian. They became actual Christian tribes. And they would, as people came to Christ, they would form another one. They'd go to another tribal leader and say, hey, you know, tell them the gospel. If they didn't, he didn't come to Christ, they would set up a settlement there. And that's the way that, that Ireland was evangelized. It was evangelized through the simple practices in this text. Isn't that cool? And that's the story of who we are, too. I don't know if you guys realize this, but we, too, are a community of people living alongside an unbelieving city, right? We're, we're living together. Um, to show them an alternative way of life, living these practices in this text, showing them the reality of Jesus' victory on the cross and the end of this present world. That's one thing we need to communicate to them, that this present world, the end of all things is at hand. This present world is not going to last. There's a dawning of a new world, and the good news is that they too can be welcomed into Jesus' kingdom if they'll repent and believe. And so we practice the same things that he did. And Patrick's group just, you know, went on and, and, and planted place after place after place. And some of you in this room are called to do just that. It's actually that simple. So some of you will be called, I hope, I pray, to go to another city, to go to another state, to go to another country. And I just say, why not take some of your friends, go to a place like Patrick did, um, be a community there, share the gospel there, practice these things, and see God work amongst the unreached, you know? There's tons of unreached people groups. Take as many people from here as you like and go do that. That's what Lorian and Holly are doing. You think about Lorian and where she's at and Holly and where she's at. It's a community thing. They're not lone rangers. I think you might have this idea that missionaries are kind of these lone rangers that go out there, and they, that's not the way it works. You go out as a community sharing the gospel. Um, the Lord's Supper, guys, is a reminder of the amazing hospitality of God, isn't it? He gives us a meal to remind us. In the bread and the cup, we see that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And I just want to ask you this morning, have you been drawn to that amazing love of God? And if you have, we ask this during this next song, come forward and pick up a cup and the bread and hold it. We're going to take it all together. And let's feed on the presence of Christ as we do so. Um, and so that we'll have the strength to give the world something that only God can give, a love that covers sin, you know, open homes with joy, that we'd speak life with the very words of God, that we'd serve with his own strength. Um, the bread's always gluten-free. Hold it, and we'll uh, take it together. Father, your word is the most excellent of food, and we just thank you for fully feeding us with your word this morning. And we pray, Lord, that, that now that you would feed us with the food of your supper. And we pray, Lord, that as we do, Lord, that we would meditate on the beauty of your amazing hospitality, a hospitality to the point of the cross. That you would so rescue us and save us through the death of your son that we could be welcomed into your presence joyfully. Lord, we just thank you that you're that kind of God, that for all eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect unity and love and enjoyment, and that you are now inviting us in to enjoy that relationship you've had from eternity past. We are so unworthy to be invited because of our sin, but you've removed all that in him. And now we come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in a time of need, to enjoy your fellowship. And we pray, Lord, as we do this, that we would sing out with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.